0: I'm David Marcus, host of Drinks With The Deal, and today our guest is Stephanie McCann, a finance partner at McDermott, Will & Emery in Chicago, and member of the firm's executive and management committees. Stephanie, thank you so much for joining us today.
1: Thank you, David, for having me. I'm really excited to be on this podcast with you.
0: So we're going to talk about several things on today's podcast. First of all, your background, how you came to have the practice you do. Secondly, what you're seeing in the finance practice now in a world of higher interest rates and a bank sector that has been quite challenged in recent weeks. And then finally, what you do to decompress from work. So with that, tell us a little bit about your background and how you came to practice law.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Thank you, David, again. So you're taking me down Memory Lane, which I always like to go down, but where I started from, let me take you back to my college days. I was a wide-eyed teen looking for some place to go that was not in Chicago, which is where I was born and raised. So any college that would take me outside of Chicago. I had an inclination for history and math and I thought Georgetown School of Foreign Service with its emphasis on diplomacy and international studies and multinationalism would be really exciting. So I went to Georgetown and it was my first time away from home and got all caught up in the hustle and bustle of D.C. and all the excitement of politics. You know, when you go to college in D.C., most students have some sort of internship on the Hill or at the White House or with some nonprofit organization. So not wanting to be left behind, I decided, hey, I'm going to go get an internship in the government. And so I ended up working as an intern for the Democratic National Committee. Back then, when I went to college at Georgetown, Bill Clinton was in the White House. So it was a good time for Democrats and me being a teen and wide-eyed and susceptible to all sorts of ideas. I decided, well, I'm going to intern at the Democratic National Committee. And it was a good experience. It was really positive, met a lot of people. And in fact, what was so interesting about that was If you recall, the 1996 Democratic National Convention was actually in Chicago. So I got to go home, got to participate, and as part of my internship, got to help with some of the events around the Democratic National Convention. One of the events I helped organize and put together, along with many, many other individuals, was the celebratory event at Navy Pier with Al Gore. So I remember I got to bring my family and I have a younger brother and he's about a decade younger. So I brought this impressionable, you know, eight, nine-year-old kid to meet with Al Gore. And I remember the next day he got to sleep in and his big thing was going late to elementary school with this autograph on his ticket from Al Gore. So, uh, you know, those were exciting times. But Being in politics, working in politics as an intern in D.C., while initially exciting, just wasn't really my cup of tea.
0: What didn't you like about it or what pieces did you like about it? But what pieces were you less wild about?
1: I like the advocacy, right? I really like the advocacy and the opportunity for change. I think what I didn't like about it was it's pretty adversarial in nature and politics can get a little bit dirty as well. And I'm not talking about clean versus dirty, but (laughs) it can get kind of mean-spirited. So I think the adversarial nature of politics, I I just didn't really enjoy. And so by the time I was a senior, I certainly decided, hey, I'm not sure that I wanted to be in the political world anymore, but let me do something else. Let me uh, do something exciting. So what would be exciting to a senior in college? Well, all my friends were going to New York. They were going to these high profile finance jobs. So I thought, you know, I watched Wall Street. You know, I know what Gordon Gecko did. Like I could go do that. (laughs) I could do something on Wall Street. So I decided to get a job on Wall Street because that's what a lot of my peers were doing. So I was deciding, you know, what type of financial job I wanted. Ended up uniquely at this trading desk for a multinational bank, actually. It was a Japanese bank, but they had basically branches all over the world.
0: And this is in the late 90s when the financial markets were in astonishingly good shape, except for the dip in the summer of 98.
1: Well, I graduated in the summer of 98. (laughs) But I ended up at a derivatives trading firm. And so we were trading options and futures and swaps. And I was a young, impressionable financial analyst helping the traders on the floor. But we had a 24-hour trading desk. So it really started in Hong Kong. Then the trading book moved to London and then landed with me in New York. But because I was the most junior member of the team, I had to open the book each day. So I was in the office five days a week, no later than let's say 5.45 a.m. I would try to get there at about 5.30 a.m., look at where the European markets were settling down, talk to the European traders, the guys based in our London office, talk to them about what had happened during the day so that I could prepare the traders for when they came in and started trading in during the U.S. market. But I will say, David, I saw so many broken phones and computer equipment probably getting smashed on a weekly basis. And I decided, you know, I don't really want to end up with anger management issues. So (laughs) this may not be where I want to land long-term. So lo and behold, what do you do when you have no clue what you want to do? you go to law school. So that is really how I decided to apply for law school. And I was lucky. I came home for law school. Family wanted me back in Chicago and got accepted at the University of Chicago, which I have been told is a pretty good law school. And so landed there and then made my way into corporate law.
0: So you had the the experience in politics and then the experience on a trading floor. And how did you end up in corporate and especially in finance?
1: Well, because of my interest, I think it stems from my background and being interested in history and math. So while I pursued the history route in college, I pursued more of the math route during my first foray into my professional career. And so when I was deciding what I would like to do after law school, I decided let's give corporate law a shot. And back then, to be quite honest, as it is today, corporate law pays well. You know, I decided, hey, it's a great opportunity to go pay off some of my law school loans and see if I like the job. I will be really honest, I never really thought I would be in the career for maybe more than five years. I thought, you know, it's going to take five years to pay off these law school loans, and then I can sort of do something else. Uh, but I started at a big law firm that was headquartered in Chicago. It's an international law firm, and quickly found an amazing mentor. And he happened to be the head of the finance practice. And so, you know, we talked about my background. We talked about my work on Wall Street. And he said, you know, I would love to have you work on some of my deals. I'll train you. I'll mentor you. And I said, hey, what the heck? Let me give this a try. And we really just ended up being such a great pair in terms of a mentor-mentee relationship. So it just moved quickly beyond looking at loan documents and drafting loan documents into quickly. It was a really positive mentor-mentee relationship. And he gave me a lot of good career advice as well.
0: So what was so critical in that relationship for you? And what did you take from it as you moved on in your career and then found yourself training and mentoring younger lawyers?
1: I think to mentor people well takes great skill because it really takes the ability to listen to listen to what the mentee would like to learn and so what my mentor uh his name was Andy what he did so well was he just he listened right listen to my background listen to where I want to go with my career And gave me the opportunities. So it's in part listening, but it's also in part giving the mentee the opportunities, the opportunities to work on complicated matters, interesting deals, and the opportunities to meet clients. I traveled with him. I got to go to, back then, you know, closings were in person, they weren't over Zoom, they weren't over email. I remember when I first started my job, a Blackberry. Was a was new, was brand new, right? That and it was big. It was a big bulky device. People who had Blackberries were, you know, so technologically advanced. People weren't running around with these iPhone devices. So it was the opportunity to travel, to meet with clients, to get not only the work opportunities but the relationship opportunities.
0: And at that point. A lot of due diligence was done in data rooms at the client, whereas now those data rooms are all virtual, meaning younger lawyers don't have those opportunities to travel, spend time with one another, spend time with a partner, spend time with the accountants, the clients.
1: Yeah. And in a way, I think that this generation might be missing some of that, particularly since we've emerged from COVID and we're so wedded to. Zoom and remote work, you really lose some in-person touch points, which honestly make for deeper, more meaningful relationships. And going back to maybe why I decided to stay in corporate law and not try another field was I really developed all these great personal relationships. And I found people who were invested in me as a person. And it was more than just professional. I got a lot of personal satisfaction. And I just also decided, David. I'm actually good at this. I love what I do. I feel like I'm good at what I do. And I feel like I'm really contributing to clients and to their goals and found really what I was passionate about. So really have ended up staying in this career for more than two decades. But wow, what a great ride it's been. And I'm hoping it'll be another great ride for another 20 years.
0: So what are you seeing now? We're having this conversation in the last week of March. Obviously, interest rates have been rising for a year plus. And earlier this month, Silicon Valley Bank filed for Chapter 11. Signature Bank had to be rescued. First Republic has been shaky. So how has all of that affected your practice and your clients?
1: Well, I would say with each what I would call maybe financial crisis or bump in the road, there's always opportunities. So there were sort of three crises I've really been through in my career. One was the 2008-2009 financial crisis. One was when we were at the start of the pandemic, really not knowing what that economic or business environment would be. And the third was the March 10th collapse of Silicon Valley Bank. What was so, I think, shocking to everybody was just how quickly Silicon Valley Bank fell. And obviously, there was the run on deposits, but I also think it was technology. It was basically the advancement of technology. And so a lot of folks got a lot of the information on the run at the bank so quickly that Silicon Valley Bank didn't really necessarily have time to recover before the FDIC had to come in. And so I think, again, with every sort of crisis, there's a moment of introspection and also the ability to really Mm. move forward and actually make gains. So I think what is happening right now is there has been a really high inflationary environment The Fed has really had to step in, raise interest rates rather quickly to combat the supply chain issues, the wage inflation issues, and just the pricing issues. And so that has really made debt a lot more expensive. But that has also made lenders decide, hey, maybe I want to have more stringent underwriting requirements. I want to have smaller holds. I want to lend into less highly levered deals. So, I think right now you're seeing a bit of a lender pullback or more stringent requirements for lending. You're also seeing that buyers and sellers are still having really high multiples for their deals. So, there is some value dislocation as to the purchase price that the seller is looking for and the purchase price that the buyer is either willing or really can pay given that there's sort of less access to the credit market. So you're seeing that value dislocation. You're seeing the negotiation turn to more lender side leverage in terms of the negotiation
0: landscape. And in the middle market, direct lenders continue to be the primary source of capital.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I would say one of the big things that came out of the 08-09 financial crisis is you saw a proliferation of just new credit funds out in the market. So I remember before the 08 financial crisis, when I was working on a finance deal and we were representing the sponsor or the borrower, really knew the lenders on the opposite side of the table. In this marketplace, after the 08-09 financial crisis, there's just been so many credit funds that have opened shops a lot of yield plays, vast amounts of liquidity in the marketplace. And so direct lenders have really come to dominate the leveraged buyout market, and in particular, the middle market for leveraged buyouts.
0: And how are the middle market deals that are getting done now or were getting done before March 10th structured as compared to the structure on those deals maybe a year and a half ago in a different interest rate environment?
1: Well, I would say that a lot of lenders now just have less hold size. So before for a lower middle market deal, for a middle market deal, maybe you just needed to bring in one lender that would hold the whole loan or a couple lenders that could hold half the loan each. Today's market Lenders just are holding less loans. And so you have to cobble together more lenders. And so the terms in the financing agreements are going to be more lender favorable because the borrower is getting the lowest common denominator for those terms because they're having to club together a larger team in order to be able to get the money that they need to pay the purchase price on the target that they want to acquire.
0: And how long do you think it takes middle market P.E. to work through this? And it'll take the credit funds to get to a point where they can make larger loans.
1: I would say that in talking to our private equity clients in today's market, the first half of this year is going to be slower. It's going to turn more inward looking at existing portfolio companies. Some of our private equity funds are telling us that the second half of the year looks a lot busier. Some private equity funds are saying, hey, it's really not going to pick up in business until Q4. I still think that there is tremendous amount of money in the market. So somebody's got to press the go button. Somebody's got to take the green light and take the plunge and get the market moving. I think you're going to see a ripple effect. I think you're going to see some by selling opportunities coming to fruition. And you're going to see that domino effect. And I would say by Q4, we will hopefully be a lot busier than we are right now.
0: And have you seen the emergence at all of alternative capital sources in the last six months to year?
1: Yeah, absolutely. One of the things that we were talking about was that senior lenders Want to lend into less levered companies, but still the private equity firms, they don't want to necessarily cut larger equity checks. So there is a resurgence, I would say, in mezzanine debt. There is a resurgence in junior capital. So preferred equity instruments, Holco pick notes. Those are the types of instruments that we're really seeing that weren't so popular in the last couple of years really gain a lot more popularity. And I would say a lot of the deals that we're looking at now that have a financing component, we're definitely seeing not only senior lender activity, but we're seeing private equity firms going out to the junior capital lenders and to the MES lenders and trying to get them involved in the deal to fill a slot in the capital structure.
0: Anything else you're seeing in the lending markets, especially anything encouraging?
1: Well, depends on your viewpoint, David. <laughs> I think lenders are taking back the really extreme aggressive terms. And in the past few years, the borrowers have really been able to dictate the terms, you know, present the lenders with a term sheet and the lenders have to agree to it. Lenders are now saying, Hey, look, pause. Let's hold on a moment. Let's make sure that the covenants are structured correctly let's make sure there are some financial covenants in our documents. So I think you're seeing the tight turn so that lenders have more of the upper hand in terms of negotiating loan documents. I think what you're also seeing in the marketplace, frankly, though, is, as I said, turning inward and looking at your existing portfolio companies and looking at the existing loans on your books. Lenders are going through and they're doing collateral reviews, on the loans that have been already made. They're making sure that they are protected in case there is a downside scenario. Borrowers are looking at creative liquidity solutions. They're also looking at ways to lever up companies, again, in a creative manner. You're also seeing a lot more financial covenant waiver asks. And as part of those asks, you're seeing a resetting of terms. So in terms of some of the borrower asks it's hey i would like to have some financial covenants waived i would like to not pay cash interest to pick interest i would like to get a holiday on my amortization i think what you're seeing lenders say is okay oh, hey, if you're making these asks and you want a reset in covenants or you want pick interest well there are some other changes that we want made which is pulling back on the aggressive addbacks to EBITDA that we've seen in recent years. They also want to make sure that sponsors are on the hook and giving sponsor guarantees, which obviously for the past few years, we really haven't seen that request, but it's coming back into the marketplace. We're seeing less flexibility on the negative covenants and smaller basket sizes. So definitely, I think the tide is turning and negotiation leverage is going back to the
0: lenders. And then finally, tell us a little bit about what you do outside of work.
1: I like to do a number of things outside of work, but I'm also a working mom. So I've got two little kiddos and I have a son who loves to play hockey. And in our family, I knew nothing about hockey until he started playing hockey. And and that's sort of an interesting story, David, was I used to ice skate when I was a kid. And so I put my son, who's my oldest child, into figure skating. And I said, oh, you know, you're going to love figure skating. You're going to love ice dancing. And so I I had him in these ice dancing lessons. And unbeknownst to me, right after his practice, he would see the high school hockey team have their practice. And so he came home one day and he said, mom, I don't want to do ice dancing anymore. And I said, why not? And he said, well, I want to play hockey. They said, hockey? I'm like, we're not a hockey family. I have no idea how to play hockey other than I think you need a stick and a puck. And so he really got our family all into hockey. And he plays travel hockey. We're so proud of him. But I will say it takes up a lot of time. So hockey is on the television morning, noon, and night in our house. And our weekends and our weeknights are spent traveling to hockey rinks in the middle of nowhere. And so we are definitely an NHL family. And because we're in Chicago, my favorite player has always been Patrick Kane. I think he's awesome, was very sad when he was traded to the New York Rangers recently. But our family also really likes Connors. I know one of the Connors we like is Connor McDavid, who plays for the Oilers. And we're really hoping, fingers crossed, that because the Blackhawks aren't doing well this season, that they may have a chance to pick up Connor Bedard in the draft. So we'll see about that.
0: Stephanie, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, David. For Drinks With a Deal, I'm David Marcus.